Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Tonight's guest is Joseph Russo, founder of the Enthusiasm Trust. A wonderful guy I've known for a long time. I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. Hear how he has made a positive and lasting difference to the lives of thousands of disadvantaged young people. Great to speak. Hi, Mark. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. And for two decades now, well, it's, I think it's, I've got it down as over two decades, you've been dedicating your you know, career, your life to helping disadvantaged young people. And yeah, well, actually, I was, I was doing a reckoning the other day. It's actually 28 years this year we've been it? doing what we've been doing. 28 years, which is, yeah, 28 years. We started our first youth club 28 years ago, 1982. So Fantastic. And what? And we'll get into that. And really keen. So the, the, the charity that Joseph founded uh, that I know is the Enthusiasm Trust, which I, I love because uh, I love enthusiastic people. Um, but... One, one story that struck in my mind, because, you know, we've spent some time together and I've seen you speak, is when you talked about the very simple uh, change you made to youth work, which was to switch it from a daytime intervention to nighttime where young people are hanging out in the right place at the right time. And could you just sort of take us back to the very start of you know, doing that and, and enthusiasm trust. Yeah. So, so I, I guess when enthusiasm began, I guess the very beginning, I, uh, just to give a little bit of context, because what's really important, and I'm sure you'll find this with a number of different social entrepreneurs, kind of who you are in your upbringing and your background kind of gives you an element of context, inspiration and drive. So I grew up, um, as uh, as an undiagnosed individual for severe dyslexia. So I really struggled through education, uh, got into a lot of trouble as a kid, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I had protective factors in my life. I had a family. Um, I was very fortunate because through that support, I left school. I'm actually a carpenter by trade. I did a four-year apprenticeship. And then a couple of years into working full-time, I I got given, I became self-employed and I moved from Manchester, which is a fabulous city, to Derby. Um, And I was confronted with some young men one night when I came home from work who were just uh, getting into mischief and into trouble. In fact, they were outside where I lived across the road, there was a factory and they climbed up the factory, they climbed up the factory wall via a lamppost and were stealing lead. I went out and addressed these kids, so what are you doing? Uh, and I challenged them and it became really apparent that they didn't have those protective factors, but also they had very little to do. So I started a youth club. Uh, I went and knocked on a few doors, local authority, uh, various different professional organizations. And what became really clear to me is that lots of the provision for young people and support for young people was early evenings and it wasn't at the right time. So I launched uh, a youth club um, and it was a Friday night. I did it on a Friday night because if ever I was get had time on my hands or I was going to get into mischief, it would be a Friday night. So we started our very first youth club on a Friday night in 1992, right about June June time. Um, and the kids who were climbing on the roof were the ones who helped me start the youth club. So that's kind of how it began. And it was very much about making sure that what we do is appropriate and relevant uh, for these kids. 
Yeah, and which seems obvious now, but wasn't to many people or youth providers at the time. So two things, just quickly, give, just give us some context of, so Derby, East Midlands, and whereabouts exactly? Did you say that? So, uh, so, so we're in a, an estate uh, called the Allenton Estate. So, and we're slap banging Derby. Uh, if you understand and know the UK, we are 16 miles away from Nottingham. Uh, Nottingham's to our, uh, our east, and we are kind of northwest of Leicester, and we are west of never yeah we're east of Birmingham if you like so right in the middle of England where we are so uh, and we run youth activities in not in Derby and on an estate in Nottingham uh, called the Clifton Estate, which I've been to now. Just going back to a comment you made earlier, which is. Um... You talked about your own dyslexia and your own challenges and in the earlier stages of your life. Do you think those experiences, that that sort of um, barrier to overcome, do you think that helped you relate to the young people to give you more empathy? Uh, absolutely, 100%. I think there's a number of factors that enables you to connect, understand. And, and that thing of empathy, is, it's a really good word, actually, because it's a real critical factor. And certainly within the UK right now, I think there's, a, there's almost a kind of void of empathy. We are really suffering for people to have a sense of empathy. Um, and for me personally, growing up, I, I was really fortunate. So I grew up in a cross-cultural environment. So my parents are both immigrants from Italy, and it was really interesting. So at home, we were Italian. But when we were out, we were English. And we had to learn to adapt and connect. Uh, my parents were very hard working, working class people. Worked in a, my, my dad worked in a factory. My mum was a cleaner. And that was really useful for me to be able to connect and engage with different cultural groups. It might sound really strange, but to live in this Italian bubble, but to be able to connect in a British English bubble, you had to learn those skills very early on. Yeah. Um, but also being dyslexic, that understanding and that sense and that feeling. So I, I coin, I use this phrase called, you know, we have, we have lots of what we call corridor kids, kids who in school just get kicked out and left in the corridor just to languish because actually they are disruptive. And actually what the, what we do in society is we just get, we just wash the, our hands of these kids. We exclude them. We chuck them out. And I was one of those corridor kids because I couldn't read, I couldn't write, and nobody knew why I, that was the case. You know, I was stupid, I was lazy, and therefore get out of the classroom. And, and I was in the corridor. So those feelings and that sense of isolation and loneliness, I get it, I understand it. Now the kids we were engaging with had very different life experiences to me. Uh, I was fortunate; I grew up with a very good, strong family. My mum, my dad were around. Most of the kids that we're working with are from very broken, dysfunctional backgrounds. I don't understand that, but I understand loneliness and I understand being excluded and I understand kind of being shunned aside and feeling worthless. I always wonder if people who face those sort of challenges in early life, does that provide the sort of bedrock for drive now or does it, do you think it alters your, the way you are as an adult? Wow, that's, uh, does it provide the bedrock? Yeah, I, 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 I kind of see life and life experiences as a kind of, you can choose how you take that. Uh, I once heard a guy speaking about life experiences as manure. And it's kind of like, 
you know, I'm not going to use profanities on this, but it's kind of the stuff that, you know, it's the rubbish of life, uh, the manure of life. But out of that is what you get things that grow out of and life grows out of that. And certainly for some people who have various different elements of resilience, protective factors, yes, you can build on those. However, the flip to that is there are lots of people right now who are in the prison system, who are homeless, who haven't been able to grow out of their experiences. So there's, a, there's an oxymoron there. So for me personally, yes, uh, those things have created a foundation and I guess enabled me to be who I am and become who I am without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. So, yes. And it strikes me that, so you, you know, you started this, this charity, you're delivering the social work, um, but you, you're incredibly good on your feet. You're a really gifted communicator because I've seen you in front of a, a lot of people. Um, you, you kind of uh, developed the charity in your own shadow, if you like. So you did a lot of advocacy work. You've, you've sort of taken it in lots of directions. And to go, going back to that, you, you started up, you know, doing the weekly um, youth work. How, how did it develop? How did it evolve those early iterations of the Enthusiasm Trust? Wow. Um, so I, I, I guess the, con the context and the foundation of this is I think I've always believed and always realized that actually, just like Mother Teresa said, we are actually all connected to one another. We all belong to one another. We are all human beings and we're all connected. Um, and therefore, actually, you know, we what we should be doing is um, showing that element of love, compassion, opportunities to each other. And I guess when I, you know, when I landed in the estate, um, it was, uh, I, I don't know how you would call them in, in New Zealand, but it's a kind of local authority council estate, very highly run down, lots of poverty. I moved on to the estate because it was I was meant to be here for six months and it was just cheap rent, to be frank with you. And it was somewhere I could just, you know, hang my hat for a, for six months while I filled out a contract. I ended up staying there while I've been here 28 years. Uh, I'm not living on the estate anymore. But I think um, the point is it's kind of, understanding that we've got that connection to one another and I suppose I saw around me lots of that the word would be social injustice I saw kids who didn't have a voice being took out of school and you know what I thought I can speak for some of those kids now I know what that feels like and therefore I need to speak up in the early stages I had no intentions whatsoever of starting a charity so I guess what was really helpful for me was I didn't, I wasn't diplomatic, mm. which might sound really, I, I, I didn't care. I thought, you know what? I'm seeing stuff happening and it's wrong. So let me give you an example. So I don't know how it works within New Zealand, but certainly in the UK, we've got an epidemic in the UK of kids being excluded from school. Uh, if you get excluded from school, various different reasons, there's all sorts of stuff. Schools are in the, certainly in the UK, are run almost like factories and businesses now. And it's almost like if you're getting in the way, we'll get rid of you. Now, the danger is those kids who get excluded, the statistics show that if you're a boy, you are 90% chance that you increase by chance of ending up within the prison, within the criminal justice system. If you're a girl, 70%. And in my area, we saw kids being excluded. And this was wrong, actually. Instead of being excluded, they needed to someone to stand up for them. Mm. There was local youth services who were kicking our kids out. And actually, these kids needed help. They needed support. And so in those very early stages, 
I began just to knock on doors and rattle cages, got on board with the local councillors and local officials, uh, got involved with the local church and actually saying, look, we've got to do something right for these guys. So in those early stages, it wasn't about doing youth work. It was actually about social justice. And it was about actually we need to speak up for these kids because they need a voice. And that that Joe Russo, who was excluded and lonely and put aside and made to feel worthless, I kind of, that was the empathy for those kids. Mm. And you you got to look beyond the behavior of the child, see what's going on inside, and to realize we're, we're, all, we're all connected. Yeah, and I think people find that difficult. I mean, when I look at, you know, your charity, it's, um, you know, talks about a, a sense of identity, belonging security that that's what you're effectively trading and and offering the young people that you help um yeah the one thing that really stuck out was your ethos to bring people face to face with someone who believes in them and if we all look back on our lives that's been crucial at times right yeah absolutely and that was the critical factor for me so growing up uh, it's really interesting, actually, because growing up as a child, there was always people in my life who believed in me. And I, and when I mention about protective factors, that's exactly what I mean. Whether that's my mum and dad, although you know, in 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 how that in how adolescence grows, they're not necessarily always the most kind of influential. Well, they are certainly when you're younger, but as you grow older, you know, uh, having those teachers, those uncles, those cousins, those people around you. So I boxed for about 10 years, which was really useful. So I used to go to the gym and box. And I had Ted Pete, who was my coach, and would, you know, come on, you can do this. And and having those people around you who believed in you, Mr. Ray, who was my art teacher, Mr. Russell, who was our, my woodwork teacher. So, so the critical thing for me, I kept getting chucked out of class. And I learned, actually, if I went to the woodwork room, Mr. Russell would always kind of helped me out and I would do loads and I just I used to love doing woodwork I still do actually but having Mr Russell who believed in me was really really important having um, those individuals and it was that sense of like I said earlier as Mother Teresa says we are all connected we need that sense of somebody to look into our lives into our eyes and believe in us and love us and care for us unconditionally and I think that's that's and, where and gets, yeah, yeah that's where charity sector is is superb and it really delivers often. Yeah. I think yeah. would it be the truth that, that you know your original mission you've got a real way of connecting, but then when you start hiring people, so you you know you find suddenly you find yourself trying to do more for more kids, and then you yeah. start hiring people, and then you you know you, the quality control if you like. Um, uh, yeah. Has that has that probably been the biggest challenge? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I would say the big, the two biggest challenges of running a charity um, are number one, in no particular order, uh, getting enough money, and number two, getting the right people. So them are the two biggest. The second, the third, which he kind of links into that, is making sure that you don't drift off your mission, uh, and that is often linked to the money situation because sometimes the going for the right money means you've got to drift off your mission, um, and Without a doubt, the number one biggest, most difficult factor is getting the right people and the people to do what we need to do. So when we first started, uh, I mean, I, again, I have no qualifications. I thought, actually, we got our first pot of money and funding. And we said, great, let's get someone from university who's got a degree in youth work. Wow, what a disaster. That was an absolute and utter disaster. So 
And over the years, we've made some mistakes, but actually one of the biggest factors for us at Enthusiasm, and I guess one of the most critical factors, is that the vast majority of our frontline direct delivery staff are guys who've come through our system. So at the moment, our head chief mentor is Carlos Dabru. So Carlos is now, I think he's about 26 years old. He came to us as an 11-year-old coming to youth club from 11 to 14. He kind of, he, he, he was, you know, just normal drifting. At 14, got very involved in the gangs. Um, not, not in a high level particularly, but he was involved in, uh, on the fringes and the peripheries, was excluded from school. Again, Carlos, severely dyslexic. At the age of 17, 18, he came, we, we started to work with him in a mentoring capacity. Um, and he's now a senior mentor. He kind of did an apprenticeship. He, he did, he's done a few different bits and bobs, but he's now our senior mentor. Um, when you have someone like Carlos, we have another young man who during lockdown um, has gone through, or prior to lockdown, uh, has been through some horrific situations of exploitation, um, drug trafficking, et cetera, et cetera. You know, a teenage boy. And it was really important that we tried to keep connection with this young man. Carlos has seen and visited this kid and often picked this child up within the context of what we can and can't do and a social distance and everything. Carlos can do things that other people can't. He's not great at writing reports. He's not great. But what he is great at is connecting. And Carlos is one of many, many stories that we have mm. of young people who've come through the system. And again, it's about investing in the community because no kid can turn to Carlos and say, you don't know what it feels like to live around here and to go through what I've gone through because he has done. Yeah, because I think that strikes a, a call with me, actually, in terms of, you know, the Joseph Russo I know. Initially, it was, rea you know, like it was reactive. You were delivering these um, diversionary kind of sessions. But actually, you, I remember you quickly turning to, but what next? What? Yeah, you, know, you raise because you've the thing of raising aspirations is you've got to then try and connect those aspirations with something meaningful, uh, and that's that. Yeah. Would that be fair? That would be the middle part of your focus that started to become. Yeah, yeah. I, I w without a doubt, I think it's really interesting because when you're at the, uh, you know, uh, you know, at the whim of governments, you know, there's various different things. I was chatting with uh, another guy yesterday who leads a charity in London. Um, a charity called Lifeline, great charity, a guy called Nathan Singleton. And he was saying on the horizon, um, it's all going to be about NEAT. For those of you who don't know what NEAT means, it stands for not in education, employment or training. And because we've got a major recession factor in the UK, um, the big focus on government is going to be, we've got to get people into jobs, we've got to get them trained up. And that's what often happens. Now, it's really interesting. You've got to deal with all of the other issues around that young person before you can actually deal with the job issues. Um, but actually, those factors of getting a job, getting stability, self-esteem are really, really critical. And pointing the way for young people becomes really critical. But it's more than just getting the job. It is about connection. It is about dealing with some of the stuff that has gone on in your life and the traumas and the difficulties but without a doubt, and you know, I, you know, we we want to see people. What, what's really great, I still live within the community. I don't live on the estate. I live about a mile and a half away, but I go out on my bike, and I'm always bumping into guys who are doing stuff, 
uh, a few months ago, I was out on, I, I was, I went for a walk and I bumped into this kid who I remember meeting. He was, a uh, had a number of different issues, was basically involved in things where he ended up not being able to come out of his room, was literally locked in his room all the time, kind of disassociated from all sorts of situations, wouldn't speak to people, got involved with enthusiasm. We did an employment training course, provided him support, mentoring. He moved on from us and he had a job in a supermarket, actually. Mm. And then from that supermarket... He's moved on and moved on. Several years later, he just finished his degree. He's now a paramedic. Fantastic. And I'm just like, yeah. wow, yeah. wow. And you, and you seeing that journey mm. is wow. And again, that you know that sounds great. He's a paramedic, but for us, actually, that person who looks after their family, there's another guy who was highly involved in the gang situation. He now works on the roads. He's digging up roads up and down the country. And I bump into him on a regular basis. He, you know, his last prison stint was he spent time, he, he was arrested as a 15-year-old child with a shotgun in the back of a taxi, believe it or not. He was transporting a shotgun across the town. That was his job. He, he, he served prison for that. He's come out of prison. He's doing fantastically well. And he's digging up roads. But the key factor of success there, he's providing for his family. He's being a dad to his children. Yeah. So it's kind of seeing these guys and moving them on yeah. and giving them that option, opportunities and aspiration. Yeah. Because taking you back um, to, I think, 2011. So you were, you were basically recruited by the Home Office to be a consultant around. And for my memory, uh, you could correct me, but... There was um, some London London riots kicked off in Tottenham, which led to widespread violence across London, but also outside of that. So, you know, across the country, Home Office knocked on your door. Just explain why and, and what you did for them. Yeah, so so the Home Office recruited a national team of experts. So I'm not quite sure why they came to me. And what they recognised is actually they needed a... Uh, I'm going to use jargon now and a multi-agency approach to this. So they, they were, there was about 100 people nationally recruited. You had people from police, you had people from um, health, you had people from education, but you also had people from communities. And I kind of represented that of what is it like to be in communities. And the deal was that actually we'd go and visit different local authorities and we would conduct reviews which were really powerful, and go and sit with some of these different areas. So, I, I mean, I got the great opportunity of traveling up and down the UK and spending weeks in these different areas and looking at what they were doing around tackling the issue of violence, gangs, exploitation, and what what could we give to them as a recommendation. There was a clear framework set up of what we did. So, yeah, we traveled up and down. So, some, so my first review actually was in Liverpool and Liverpool has got a major notorious issue of, of, of gangs embedded. But what it did for me, again, I make reference to being dyslexic, being dyslexic for those of you who aren't aware, it's actually a superpower because it gives you the ability to see things that others don't. And it gives you the ability of thinking, actually, how can I make something fit that doesn't fit? Mm. So I kind of gained masses of experience of working really, really closely with with um, kind of local authority officers and senior strategists and police. And actually I saw what was happening was they would often complicate things and make things seem far more complicated than they need. And there was programs, plans, but being part of that, I, I did a number of uh, boroughs in, Lo in London, 
Grimsby, various different places, it opened my eyes. But what it enabled me to do was to be able to actually say, what these kids need is people to care for them. And they need that basic, simple understanding that we're all connected. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the, and I'm, I'm still a what is called a peer reviewer, still involved with the home office, still very closely aligned and working with the home office. I'm doing a training session for home office staff about community engagement in a couple of weeks. Um, so, yeah, so that was a great opportunity. And if you'd have said to me a few years ago, you'll be, you know, acting as an advisor or the home office had kind of probably laughed at you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that doing two people rather than finding out what they need and really understanding their reality, I think that's the crucial part there. And, it, you know, um, big respect to the home office, I guess, because, uh, yeah, they've gone to the right yeah. person. And t- just in terms of you as a human being, so, you know, as corrected at the start, you've done almost three decades in this game. Um, you know, yeah. with that will have come some sacrifice. And, you know, like, is there any point where you actually thought, do you know what, the, the relentless raising of funds, that, you know, the sort of hiring people, um, you know, get, making the wrong decisions, making the right decisions, but that sort of relentless um, running of a business, because effectively, that's why I see a charity is, mm-hmm. did it ever cross your mind that actually you could do, like, do something else? Um, absolutely. On a regular basis, Mark, actually. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in one sense, I, I, so I, I once uh, met this wonderful gentleman called Mark who introduced me to the concept of founder syndrome. Uh, do you remember that, mate? <laughs> was that me? So you, it was you, actually. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. You said, you know, talk to I, I remember once, I, was, I can't remember, I was probably having a bit of a moan to you. So I, w- one of the greatest things of the journey is what's really important is to be connected to those kids. But what is also important that we're all connected to each other, the funders, et cetera. And obviously we always had that great relationship, even you've moved on and we're, we're still talking. Um, and I remember you chatted with me about this concept of founder syndrome and you actually introduced me to uh, uh, your mother-in-law, in fact, and had a conversation with your mother. I don't know if you remember that actually, Matt. I had a really good chat and conversations. Yeah. So do you remember that? Do I? It's coming back because um, it was, I think, <laughs> from my perspective, so I was at the time working for St. James's Place Charitable Foundation and we really believed in enthusiasm and trust, really believed in you. But what we saw yeah. is, you know, like, well, as an investment, one of our risks factors yeah. was the fact that we felt a lot of the mission was relinked to you. So if you, if you suddenly yeah. decided yeah, yeah. to, you know, so th- it was kind of around that. And so that, that conversation with Claudia McVie, is her name, wh- yeah. what, what came out of that for you? I, th- I think it was just good to chat and reflect and see and look at different ways of doing stuff. But I, I kind of dug beyond that. I looked more at the whole thing of founder syndrome. And I suppose for me, I never got into this to set up a charity. I got into it because I wanted to see that whole factor of social justice and speak because I felt I had a moral duty to do that. And I never not wanted to do that. So on a regular basis, I think I have times, when I say regularly, probably every three, five, maybe six years, I try and take some time out and say, right, am am I still passionate about this? Does it still float my boat? Am I still able to give my all? So I go through those spells and those stages. And the reason I do that is because I think the greatest barrier for young people in what we do are people who are doing jobs who aren't passionate about what they do. Mm. So poverty is a major factor, exclusion. 
But the driver and the underlining factor of those are people who have got the sense of responsibility to facilitate change when they become the blockage. That's the problem. So I guess that's what I'm always constantly fighting and therefore I don't want to be fighting myself. So I'm always asking myself that question. I guess as I look at the journey of enthusiasm, it has evolved, it's moved on. So I don't have anything to do with youth clubs. I don't have anything to do with mentoring young people anymore. We have a whole team of people who are doing that. And my role's evolved, changed. I'm working much more nationally, traveling, doing training, seminars, various other things. So it's constantly evolving. Um, but I guess, actually, there comes a time where you've got to stop, think, and look. Um, I think there's this mentality as well within our industry where we are almost less deserving. Um, and therefore, the idea of taking three, four, five weeks on a great, fabulous holiday is seen as you work for a charity. You can't do that. You can't afford to do that. So that becomes a real difficult one. And sometimes it is tough. It's tough on the family. It's tough on those of you around you. But yes, to answer your question, there are regular times. I just feel tired. I feel like, yeah. you know, have I got any more in me? Yeah. That, that's the reality. That's absolute truth. Yeah. yeah. And I think because, you know, it's starting a business, starting a charity, in a sense, is very similar things to do. But actually, there's, there's not this, um, you know, point where the charity goes from startup to, to sort of small to medium then thrive and you know suddenly there's not a big pot of money and you know like also you know kids uh marriage uh aspirations i, I also think for you what would be uh true would be you've been off operating on very you've been a high profile in a certain parts of the world uh you know allerton the east midlands and so you know you and you've been on lots of boards as well and you would have been that would have been really good at times. It would have been not so good at times. And and I, I've just noticed looking at your LinkedIn profile, have you sort of tried to simplify your life recently and just try and get back to stuff that matters to you around family? And Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's been, yeah. So, so I think sometimes life can become too complicated and complex and it becomes too messy. And, um there's too many things going on I, I I'm very if you came into my office because of my dyslexia and all the rest I'm, I'm a bit kind of everything has to be clear clean and free and I guess I got to a point where I was on so many boards so many different things and I was going from left to right and here and everywhere so I've actually took a step back from all of that so uh, interesting that you noticed that, Mark. And and it's almost right. What am I doing? Where am I going? Uh, in fact, yes, not yesterday on Tuesday, I was with a guy who I meet regularly. One of the reasons we're in London. Uh, he's a fabulous human being. A guy called Steve Chalk, who's the founder of a massive, multi-million-pound charity in the UK uh, called Oasis. Uh, he they have fifty schools. He's got lots of stuff. And just spending some time with him, saying, "Look, Steve." just making sure that that fire doesn't go out and that I've got time, but also looking at what is on the horizon. Um, what's really exciting is we're kind of working on a joint project together to look at setting up uh, the very first um, uh, secure academy in the UK. So what that means is in basic layman's term, we've got prisons in the UK. Britain has more children in prison than most of Europe and probably most uh, the more than lots of Western world countries. We put kids in jail. When you put them in jail, 
you're just creating like it doesn't work it just mm. does not work and i've worked with kids so how can we create something a youth prison inverted commas which isn't a prison and so we oasis have got the contract to do that uh hopefully launch in the next couple of years so speaking to steve how can we take my experience because again what we're doing is we're trying to prevent kids going to jail in the first place we're working with lots of kids who come in and out and in and out of the criminal justice system i still mentor a gentleman who's serving a life sentence for ordering a shooting so we're very very much involved in that criminal justice element and what can we do to design something different? So cutting a long story short, I'm kind of taking a bit of a step back looking at that. I'm 51 years old. You know, you start looking at life and you think, you know, what do I need to do? Um, so, yeah, I, I guess having those points in life where you stop and reflect. My kids, I've got an 18-year-old and a 20-year-old. Actually, my 18-year-old is about, well, was scheduled to go uh, traveling Southeast Asia, New Zealand and Australia. All that's on hold because of COVID. And my 18-year-old wants to go to Australia, believe it or not, in a couple of years. Great. Um, so it's kind of you start to look and reflect, where am I at? What am I doing? All that kind of stuff. Yeah. I don't know if that – yeah. No, it does. And in terms of um, you know, a younger Joseph Russo, if you, if you were meeting equivalent of you at the start of this founder journey with Enthusiasm Trust, what advice would you give you? Wow. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. Um, whew, that's a, that's a, that's a really challenging question. I think it would be, be kind to yourself. I think it would be, um, don't take your wife for granted. Um, yeah, that they would be the two biggies, which is kind of a bit heavy in it probably. Uh, but, but yeah, actually, um, don't feel as though you're not worthy of, being rewarded so I, I guess during the journey we've battled and fought and it's kind of almost like that sense of we work for a charity we've got to be poor um yeah which is just wrong mm. you know and sort of not giving myself and therefore my family and those around me the rewards that they would get you know if I run my own business a multi-million pound business it'd be very different yeah which I do run yeah. a business. Yeah, yeah. Um, With all the pressures so, and strains, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So be kind to yourself. Don't take your wife for granted uh, and invest. I, I'm a great dad. I have no doubts on that. Uh, I've spent lots of time with my kids. I've never neglected my kids. Always invested, invested, invested. But I guess there's things I could have, yeah, I guess I could have done better and more. I, I probably could have been easier on myself, took more holidays. Yeah. And you know, as we move to sort of wrapping up, um, if you were, you know, Boris Johnson, if you were in charge of the, even your local authority, in terms of support of young people or solutions for young people in terms of facing up to, you know, poverty, uh, stuff around social media, which is very different from when you first started Enthusiasm Trust, isn't it? Um, what what would you be looking, we're saying to the government? What are you saying to the government they need to do more of? So two things one we've got to be driven by compassion and empathy that word that you used at the very beginning so so within the uk and around a lot of what we're talking about at the moment there's a lot of things about what we called trauma informed adverse childhood experiences i don't know if that's something that's hitting your radar very much in in new zealand mark but this whole aspect about as you grow up as a child 
the things that go on in your life will affect who you are and affect your emotional ability, affects the growth and the development of your brain. So if you grow up in a household where there's domestic violence, where there's poverty, if you grow up in a household where you've seen uh, abuse and so on, it shapes your life. And actually, the only way that you can tackle some of that is not by using kind of uh, punishment, but actually we need to be looking at nurture. We need to be looking at kindness and we need to be looking at inclusion. That's what we need to do. We need to be compassion driven, completely not target driven, not 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 driven by you have been naughty. You're going to get excluded. We've got to be driven by compassion and see the person as mother Teresa said we're all connected to each other but i'd want us to push back those parameters of compassion and so that they were far more inclusive and we didn't leave people on the outside of compassion that's what i would be saying to government that's what we are saying actually there's no point in running a program if it isn't embedded in compassion Love is the key to making this work and change and bringing about that transformation that young people need. It's what you needed as a kid. It's what I needed as a kid. It's what every single kid across the UK. So that, that would be the first part. And the second part is this takes time. Um, and it's, it's not a journey of A to B. It's a journey that's all over the place. I've got guys, I know guys who have been horrendous as the system looks at them. They've gone to jail and they're seen as the failure. But actually, if you go five years later, actually they're looking after their families. They're looking, and it's mm. about understanding 10 years. I'm, I'm deeply inspired at the moment by a project in Los Angeles called Homeboy Industries. I'm really fortunate. I'm actually going there. I, I won an award actually through uh, the Rank um, Foundation. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that actually. Uh, anyway, I think it's, I don't know if it's embargoed. It's still embargoed, by the way. So, so you might want to take the word rank out of this. Um, <laughs> but, but I've just written, so, so I've won an award. I'm going to go and spend three weeks in Los Angeles with the largest gangs rehabilitation reentry program. And it is completely driven by compassion. And it's driven by this guy called Father Greg Boyle. If you get a chance to Google Father Greg Boyle, wow, wow, what a human being. And that's what we need in society. It's what we need in the UK. It's what we need in Australia. It's about inclusion. It's about kindness. But it's also about a long-term project. Fantastic. And it feels like a really good place to end, although I, my instinct is to keep going on my sort of desire is to keep going with this conversation, really enjoying it. Um, in terms of, you know, we've talked about funding always being an issue. And I think... Uh, government funding for charities is is vital at this time of of uh, a pandemic. But actually, the crucial thing about voluntary funding or funding from the the, the public is that it keeps charities uh, independent, and it, they can then keep the government hold them to account as well. So, in terms of supporting enthusiasm trust, how does one do that? How how do they get a hold of you? Um, is there a URL that they visit? Is there a what? Sorry, Mark. Is, it, is there a website to visit? Yeah, there is a website. It's currently being uh, redone because it's slightly out of date, but there is a website, www.enthusiasm.org.uk is our website. Get in touch with us through that. Find me on LinkedIn, chat. We're always willing to talk to people. It's always exciting to chat with folks. Uh, but yeah, so that's our connections. My Twitter is Joseph Roosh. Yeah, I, well, I follow you. So if, 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 um, if anybody follows you, they might follow, they might find me on your 
Twitter uh, people that follow you, mate. So excellent. And um, hey, been really good to to have a conversation. And uh, what I'm really pleased about is uh, your your sort of uh, mission, your passion for the the theory around helping young people is still really evidently strong in you. So um, congratulations on that. Thanks for joining me tonight, and um, well, I look forward to meeting you in the future. Brilliant, Mark. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Massive thank you for listening tonight. Really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, Joseph Russo is uh, a really inspirational guy and uh, hugely charismatic. I um, just want to say a bit of a plug for Pepsi Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Take a listen, subscribe, hit subscribe, and uh, if you have an opportunity, uh, leave a review as well. Have a good evening. Good night. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. I hope you like what you're hearing. Please subscribe and leave a review. Thank you.